Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for January 30th, 2023. Here's today's rundown. Never-before-seen data reveals that hierarchical condition category risk scores could predict under- or overcoding. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen has an exclusive report. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. John Zellum, and Kate Brantley, who has our legislative update. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report this morning, and we begin, as we usually do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He is making his Monday Rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. This morning, I was going to talk about all the issues facing our nursing facilities, but then I received a question from Christine in Minnesota who asked me if I'd written anything about ED borders that she could review. Well, that's all it took to get me fired up to do it. And to make it better, she sent me some questions such as, our billers think that a patient has to stay past midnight to be an ED border. Is that true? So let me start with this. What CMS and other organizations reference is ED throughput and consider boarding a measure of the time from the decision to admit to the transportation of the patient to that location. Patient boarding in the ED is in itself not intrinsically a bad thing. It's extensive boarding that can be problematic. Of course, the reason for reducing boarding is related to patient safety, with several studies showing an increase in medical errors and mortality with increased ED boarding times and patient volume. An ED nurse with 10 other patients should not also be caring for an inpatient being managed by the hospital. While ED boarding time may be a quality measure, from the billing standpoint, ED boarding does not exist. An ED patient's care is billed as ED care up until the time they're either admitted as an inpatient, begin receiving observation services, or they're transferred out of the ED to a pre-op area, another hospital, or even upstairs for custodial care. If none of these happens, they remain an ED patient. ED boarding is not billed as a status or service. Payer policy can be viewed as location agnostic. If the patient is formally admitted as an inpatient, then they're an inpatient, regardless of whether they're boarding in the ED in an inpatient bed or receiving care in a makeshift inpatient unit in a tent in the parking garage. Likewise for observation care. Of course, the patient should have their care transferred to that physician from the ED doctor. Now, unlike facility charges for inpatient or observation or surgery, all of which are billed by units of time, either minutes, hours, or days, ED facility billing is based on the services provided to the patient without any regard for time. One ED visit, be it four hours or four days, generates one unit of ED care. Patients frequently requiring inpatient psychiatric care are also frequently boarded in the ED awaiting transfer. They cannot be admitted as inpatient because they'll lose their place in line for transfer, but they can start receiving observation services to allow the hospital to bill for the additional charges that come along with many hours or days of waiting for transfer. ED boarding is a bad thing because of the adverse effects on patient safety and quality, and the staff stressors from caring for many more patients than is safe. But remember, it's not a status and does not affect how care is billed. 
Watch for my article for more details. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, their 2023 program audit process overview came out recently. The report is published by the Division of Audit Operations. CMS will send engagement letters to initiate routine audits beginning February 2023 through July 2023. Engagement letters for ad hoc audits may be sent at any time throughout the year. The program areas for the 2023 audits include Part D, Coverage Determinations, Appeals and Grievances, Compliance Program Effectiveness, Part D, Formulary and Benefit Administration, Medicare Medicaid Plan Service Authorization Requests, Appeals and Grievances, Medicare Medicaid Plan Care Coordination, Part C organization determinations, and special needs plans care coordination. The program audit process document is only 13 pages, yet it's supposed to set forth the rules that the auditors must abide by in 2023. And my question is, what if they don't? What if the auditors fail to follow proper procedure? For example, similarly to last year, an audit consists of four phases. One, audit engagement and universe submission. Two, audit field work. Three, audit reporting. And four, audit validation and closeout. (laughs) I'd like to add another phase. Five is appealing. According to the report, and this is a quote, the audit engagement and universe submission, which is the first stage, is a six-week period prior to the field work portion of the audit. During this phase, a sponsoring organization is notified that it has been selected for a program audit and is required to submit the requested data, which is outlined in the respective program audit protocol and data request document. My question is this, they call it the sponsoring organization? Is CMS referring to the provider who's getting audited as a sponsoring organization? And why does CMS call the provider who's getting audited sponsoring? Is it because after the audit, the sponsoring organization will be paying in recoupments? It is interesting that the first phase audit engagement and universe submission last six weeks. At this point, I want to know, does the provider know that the facility has been targeted for an audit? As an attorney, I get to see the process in the aftermath. Folks call me in distress because they have gotten the results of an audit and disagree. I've never had the opportunity to be involved in an audit from the get-go 
So if any of y'all receive an audit, let me know. Please call me. I won't charge you. I just want the experience of walking through an audit from the get-go. I think it would be fascinating. In other news, as you know, CMS may issue civil money penalties to providers for alleged noncompliance. Other penalties exist as well, which may or not be worse than civil penalties. On January 23, 2023, CMS published a correction that Total Long-Term Care, Inc., DBA, Innovage, Colorado Pace, corrected its violations. In 2021, CMS had suspended its ability to re-enroll. Another facility was imposed with prepayment review, which means that the facility must submit claims to an auditor prior to receiving reimbursements. Prepayment review is probably the worst penalty in existence. I actually had a client of mine yesterday that was told prepayment review is imminent. The only recourse for prepayment review is a federal or state injunction staying the suspension of reimbursements. You can't statutorily, you can't appeal being placed on prepayment review, but you do have a chance to stay the suspension. The suspension makes no sense to me. It's as if the government is saying you're guilty before an ability to claim innocence. But that's just my humble thoughts. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Kate Brantley, and Dr. John Zellum, who's standing by to summarize today's Monitor Monday News. It's Monday, it's January the 30th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Confusion arising from coding and billing for observation services has plagued hospitals for a long time. Today, the waters are muddier than ever, thanks to shorter hospital stays, stricter payer guidelines for inpatient admissions, difficulty in arranging post-acute care, and other factors. To avoid trouble with payers and auditors, you must understand and apply the latest coding and billing requirements for observation services. Get a jump start on your comprehension with guidance from Dr. Ronald Hirsch during an essential RAC Monitor webcast. Dr. Hirsch will conduct an A to Z view of observation services in 2023. Join us as Dr. Hirsch breaks down significant 2023 changes to coding and billing requirements for hospital observation services, including new physician E&M coding rules. The webcast is this Thursday, February 2nd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. And David, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, I don't know if it's risky, but last month I did a webinar for the Association for Healthcare Denial and Appeal Management about the two midnight rule. The session generated a bunch of good questions, and I think our listeners might appreciate hearing the answers. So the most common question was, wait, so you don't need a written order for a patient to be considered an inpatient? Well, if people have been listening to Ron Hirsch report on the fact that back in 2018, CMS eliminated the need for a written order to justify inpatient admission, they'd be all over this. 
So now to be clear, I'm not saying that admission is completely appropriate without any order. This is a good time to dive into some semantics and focus on why it's important to read and listen very carefully when talking about Medicare regulations and really emphasize the importance of each and every word. The two midnight rule requires an order from a physician who has admitting privileges and is knowledgeable about the patient's hospital course, medical plan of care, and current condition. But, at, but that order can be oral, not written. As I've mentioned in the past, people often speak of verbal orders. I would really like to banish that word from our vocabulary. All orders are verbal, whether they're spoken, written, or transmitted via Morse code. Verbal means it's in words. Oral means it's spoken aloud. I do not think you need me to tell you what written means. You got that. So the order can be oral, and it need not come from the physician who's primarily treating the patient. Any physician who has admitting privileges and is knowledgeable about the patient's hospital course can issue the order. I do not see any reason that a utilization management physician would be barred from issuing the order as long as the physician has taken the time to review the patient's hospital course and plan of care. Now, I should emphasize that everything I just said, said applies solely to Medicare. It's entirely possible that in your state, your Medicaid program has different requirements. Private payers are entitled to have whatever conditions they want to impose. But for Medicare uh, and for Medicare Advantage, you do not need to have a written order. And the reason I say it for Medicare Advantage is Medicare Advantage can't be more restrictive than Medicare. So another question relate, related to situations in a post-COVID waiver world where the patient is ready to leave the hospital for a skilled nursing facility, but no skilled nursing bed is available. In that situation, is it reasonable to admit the patient if they're going to be in for more than two midnights? I think this is a really good question, and I'm interested in Dr. Hirsch's thoughts on it. While preparing for the webinar, I learned that in QIO Manual Chapter 7, Section 7005, it says that Medicare pays for hospital days for patients awaiting placement until a swing bed is available. I think that language strongly suggests admission is appropriate when a skilled nursing bed is unavailable, but I will not claim to be completely confident in that answer. Finally, let's deal with a softball. If the patient is admitted as an inpatient, but unexpectedly improves after one midnight and is discharged, is it still permissible to treat them as an inpatient? Absolutely. Admission status is determined by the expected course at the time of admission. Unanticipated results, whether death or improvement, kind of the two opposite extremes, that alter the planned course of care do not change the validity of the original assessment. The only problem would be is if the physician's initial expectation of a two midnight stay, based on the facts available at that time, was unreasonable. Say the patient didn't need to be in the hospital at all. So Chuck, as long as you've got an oral order, there's no need for you to get a new order. And in the words of New Order's song, True Faith, when it comes to the future of the two midnight rule, What I can tell you is you don't need to refund just because you're lacking a written order. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, 
Kate Brantley with a Monitor Monday legislative update. The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Kate Brantley. It's no surprise that the COVID pandemic has continued to impact the healthcare industry, but the area in which that is being felt the most is healthcare workforce numbers. And this continuing struggle creates a dangerous situation. Take, for example, a recently uncovered conspiracy straight out of the plot from the film Catch Me If You Can. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida recently charged over two dozen defendants for their participation in a nursing credentialing-related wire fraud scheme titled Operation Nightingale. The office stated that the individuals sold 7,600 fraudulent nursing degree diplomas and transcripts from actual Florida-based nursing schools, earning over $100 million in the process. These fake documents were used to qualify would-be nurses to sit for the National Nursing Board exam and then go on to obtain nursing licenses and jobs around the country. So while the purchasers of these fake documents did have to pass their board exams, investigators found that they did not take any real courses or complete the required clinical training hours. They simply paid up to $15,000 to what was described as a cash mill. The nursing schools involved are now closed, but this means that there are potentially 7,600 nurses around the country with fraudulent credentials. And while investigators said that they have not discovered any evidence of patient harm stemming from this scheme, as the U.S. attorney for the district pointed out, when we talk about a nurse's education and credentials, shortcut is not a word we want to use. One of the reasons this scheme is so devastating is that it comes on the heels of an overall workforce and access of care shortage in the healthcare industry, as well as some serious burnout reported by medical professionals. A recently released study found that employment in healthcare is below expected levels given pre-pandemic trends in the industry, while some specialties are still seeing basic staffing levels struggle to return to numbers seen before March of 2020. Both Congress and state legislatures are proposing various solutions to combat these issues. CMS recently awarded the first 200 of a promised 1,000 Medicare-funded physician residency slots designed to supplement the healthcare workforce and fund additional hospital positions, particularly in rural and underserved communities. Created as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, these positions are spread out over 30 states and focus on primary care and mental health. In addition to expanding COVID-era telehealth provisions, some states have begun to look at healthcare worker staffing and worker-to-patient ratio laws. Washington and Massachusetts have introduced bills that, if passed, would create nurse-to-patient ratios in hospitals, and the Washington language also places a cap on on-call hours. Oregon lawmakers introduced a bill developing staffing committees that would establish staffing and workforce standards. This type of legislation already exists in California, New York, and Colorado, but New York's law was at issue earlier this month when more than 7,000 nurses went on strike over workforce levels. A deal that centered around staffing ratios and the addition of new nursing positions brought the strike to a close within three short days. So, Chuck, as legislative committees begin to meet again for 2023, lawmakers have to examine how best to support the healthcare workforce through this time, particularly when discussing what a post-PHE world will look like. While there are proponents and opponents for almost every option that's being discussed, everyone can agree that this is a top priority for the year ahead. Back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley. Kate is a legislative analyst for Zealous. And coming up next, the results of a never-before-seen research study by senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. That story is next. You're listening to Monitor Monday, where the time is 19 minutes after the hour in your time zone. Please stand by. Get essential radiology coding education anytime, anywhere with the comprehensive Radiology All Access Pass. This powerful all-in-one solution is ideal for organizations that provide a broad spectrum of interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Besides keeping everyone on the same page, the comprehensive Radiology All Access Pass enables your team to earn the CEUs they need to stay credentialed. For a single subscription fee, A comprehensive radiology all-access pass gives you unlimited access to every radiology how-to resource in our extensive library, e-books, coding charts, live and on-demand webcasts, a monthly newsletter, and blog content. This is the ideal knowledge transfer solution for teams of all sizes, ensuring that everyone is referencing the same reliable information and following the same rules and best practices. The Comprehensive Radiology All-Access Pass is available at MedLearn Media. As you heard at the top of the broadcast, we had never before seen data on hierarchical condition category risk scores, data that could project under and over coding. Here now to report our lead story is Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Chuck. So, you know, there's a lot to say about the CMS hierarchical, hierarchical condition category. There's even more to say about the risk adjustment factors, but not enough time here to get into the gory details of all the models and the methods. But suffice it to say that in the most broadest perspective, the HCC risk scores are used to assess the relative health of a given patient. And, and mathematically, one could then create an average risk score for a given physician by simply adding up all the risk scores for their unique patients, their population, and then dividing by the number of patients. So I guess the big question is, why would we even want to do this? And the, the answer is to add another vector to our risk assessment toolbox. Now, the risk scores are used to determine capitation rates for Medicare Advantage programs, and that's a whole nother problem. But the higher the score, or the average scores for that matter, for the insured lives under the Medicare Advantage plan, the more money CMS pays to the Medicare Advantage organization. Now, now how that impacts profit depends on how the healthcare services for those patients are managed. So the more care, the higher the cost, the lower the the profit. So from a business perspective, there's two ways to increase the profitability, either limit services or increase the risk scores. But how in the world can you do the latter? Well, income CDI or clinical documentation improvement. And this has become like a niche industry of consultants that work with providers, oftentimes paid by the Medicare Advantage organizations to maximize the risk scores for their subscribers by ensuring that every disease and diagnosis is documented and that every code is reported. And this sounds like a great idea. After all, better documentation is always a good thing. But is this subject to abuse? And the answer is yes. At least it appears that way by the large number of lawsuits the government has filed against healthcare, managed care, and consulting organizations for allegedly fraudulently inflating those scores by including documentation that goes beyond the actual diseases presented by the patient. Anyway, you get the point. 
So how can we create another risk detection vector from this? Well, let's start by building a baseline against which individual scores can be benchmarked. The data for this, the way I did it, I got it from the Medicare Physician Provider and Service Public Use File. You can download it from the CMS website. It contains over a million NPI codes, and you're going to have to do a bit of cleaning up before you proceed with it. I ended up with right around 800,000 good records of providers. Now, each line represents a provider, and it includes an average risk score, and that's the average of all the risk scores for all the unique beneficiaries for that provider. Now what I do is I create an average risk score by specialty. I just use all the average provider risk scores for the providers in that specialty, and I create an average for the specialty. And then the next thing is to calculate some variance, because what you want to do is establish a range that we're going to use to identify potential over or under coding. Now, I chose two standard deviations as my variance. And the reason is because it validated well against the percentile rankings in the public use file. But now what you do is you take the average risk score for your physician and benchmark against the baseline. So let's say I have cardiology and it's 1.5 to 2 and your provider is 2.8, then maybe that provider's higher than what you would expect and they might already be overcoding. If the score is below the lower bound, let's say it was 0.8, then they might be a candidate for CDI and obviously those in between are likely coding fine. <clears throat> now, having said this, remember, this is a mathematical process. And the only way to really know whether a provider is coding properly is through a chart audit. And hopefully, if nothing else, this can add to your risk-based auditing toolbox and help you become more efficient by prioritizing your audits. Now, in the infamous words of Benjamin Franklin, an ounce of prevention is worth millions of dollars in extrapolated overpayments or something like that. And that's the world, according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen, and we certainly enjoyed having you with us today. we got a couple of minutes to answer your questions. David, join me. What's going on? Yeah, so, um, Ron, I'm going to be pulling you in here. So the first question comes from Jessica, who wants me to repeat the manual language I cited. And frankly, if you don't know about this, and that wasn't a Frank Cohen, frankly, uh, but if you don't know about this, I don't blame you. I didn't even know there was a QI map. QIO manual for probably 20 years of my legal career. So it's QIO manual, chapter seven, section 7005. And Ron, what's your take? Do you think that if the person, you know, is sitting in the hospital and the only reason they're going to be staying in the hospital is there's not a sniff bed to discharge them from, is an admission appropriate in your mind? No, I think they require continued hospital care, um, which they don't. So I think that the the rules about certification allow you to get paid for inpatient days waiting for a skilled nursing bed, but it's really silent on an outpatient who requires skilled nursing care but does not have a bed available. So I, I take the silence as no. What about that QIO manual language and the fact that hospital care is hospital care? They need hospital well, care, or at yeah. least they needed it. I mean, I, I, there's the prospective yeah. part that I agree with. Yeah, I'll have to look at the QIO manual. I will tell you, and I'm fighting with the QIO right now because one of their manual provisions is from 2003 and has not yet been updated. So I think it's, I, I need to take a look at that provision and understand it. I, I will admit I have not and, and read that. And to be clear, mine is, mine is as old. It's, it's old. It's really old. Um, yeah. So one more quick question before we turn, turn it back to Chuck. 
So um, what's your thought about whether or not a physician advisor who is familiar with the patient's course of care, but not necessarily treating the patient, can write an admission order, assuming they have admitting privileges? <sighs> I'm also going to say no. The oh, physician advisor who's, who, who's working as, as on behalf of the UR committee is not allowed to be involved in the care of the patient that's being determined. So... But again, I'm going to go back and look at all the provisions and and um, and see. I think this will be a fun one for us to discuss sometime in the future. Uh, and uh, it, it goes to show how hard parts of this stuff are. And uh, Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. Uh, joining me now for a recap of today's Modern Money News Stories, here is Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and the CEO for Streamlines Consulting Solutions. Dr. Zellum, uh, first impressions, please. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. And uh, the one topic that I heard today is that on the two midnight rule. And I always enjoy listening to that. And as uh, David and Ron so often say, it is so simple, yet how can we make it? People try so hard to make it so complicated. And I think the important thing is, is just always remembering, because I love getting, in a sick way, I love getting involved in a conversation with uh, Medicare Advantage organizations and doing a peer-to-peer with a uh, medical director. <clears throat> and as I try, you know, once I listen to the clinical and once I start bringing up regulatory stuff, as a, a peer-to-peer that I had the other day, the medical director said to me, I don't need to be lectured. And I wanted to say, well, if you understood it, you wouldn't need to be lectured. But that being said, I think there's one part of the two midnight rule that's somewhat always forgotten, and I just want to reinforce it in addition to everything that Ron and David say, and that's section uh, D12. If an unforeseen circumstance, such as beneficiary's death or transfer, results in a shorter beneficiary stay than the physician's expectation of at least two midnights, the patient may be considered to be appropriately treated on an inpatient basis, and payment for an inpatient hospital stay may be made under Medicare Part A. I think hospitals, utilization review staff, et cetera, tend to forget this section. So back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Zellum, for your insight and analysis. Dr. Zellum is the founder and the CEO for Streamline Consulting Solutions. So we also thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Kate Brantley, Frank Cohen, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and of course, Dr. John Zellum. We did receive a number of questions about Frank Cohen's segment this morning, and the good news is we're going to be reporting his story this Thursday in Rack Monitor, and also we're going to be reporting his story tomorrow on ICD-10 Monitor. And one more thing before we go, when we're not on the air, you can listen to all the Monitor Monitor broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, and Spotify, and when you do, rate us give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. And be sure to listen to me tomorrow on Talk to Tuesday. That's when we begin our whole series on the plight of rural health. Goodbye now. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.